Smartcast Media presents Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. This is how investigators now piece the events together. She was seven months pregnant and thinking about taking a leave of absence. She was last seen walking toward the northwest parking lot stairway to an upper level parking area. Mrs. Chu's car wasn't found until Thursday morning, but police strongly believe it was seen Tuesday evening driving near the intersection of 15th and X Streets. Mike Boyd for Channel 3 Reports, Sacramento. I knew general details, but I didn't know all the graphics, and um, I did go to a trial with my father. Uh, uh, it, it was, I knew prior to the trial that it would be graphic and it would have everything that had happened. I am Anne-Marie Schubert and this is Inside the Crime Files. Inside the Crime Files is produced by Olas Media in San Diego, California. Welcome to Inside the Crime Files. I am Anne-Marie Schubert. This podcast takes listeners inside and behind the scenes of the investigation and the prosecution of some of the most notorious and horrific cases in California history. This week, we examine a cold case from 1979, the kidnap, rape, and murder of Eva Chu. Eva Chu was seven months pregnant, married with an 18-month-old daughter when she was murdered in 1979. When I started the cold case unit in 2002, every homicide detective from Sacramento Police Department and every retired homicide detective said the same thing. This case needs to be solved. I had a chance to sit down with our guest today, Dick Woods, retired homicide detective from the Sacramento Police Department. We talked about the events and the memories from this case. Here is the conversation we had, and later in the podcast, you'll hear directly from Eva's surviving daughter, Dana. Let's take a listen. I am joined today by retired homicide detective Dick Woods from Sacramento Police Department. We're here today to talk about the 1979 kidnap, rape, murder of a woman by the name of Eva Chu. So first off, I'll start with a good morning to Dick Woods. Good morning. Before we, um, and I'm going to call you Dick because we've known each other for a long time. Yes. I think over 20 years now. Over 20 years. Um, and I, before we kind of start talking about the case itself, tell us about your background. You know, what years did you work? That kind of stuff. Uh, I joined Sacramento City Police Department in 68, and I worked there for 36 years. Okay, so what was that? If I do the math, that's 2004? Uh, I was still, got injured, and I was still there. Uh, had a good career for 36 years and finally had to quit on an industrial injury. Okay, so tell us a little bit about the kinds of cases that you worked on. Well, uh, after my first three years, I went to detectives and stayed there the rest of my career. And uh, that career meant all details, all different types of crimes. And uh, then eventually in the homicide for 17 years. Okay. Until I retired. Okay. So obviously spent many years doing homicide investigations, right? Yes. During those 17 years, I, I don't know if you can estimate or not, how many homicides do you 
they were part of in terms of investigations? Um, I testified uh, that I participated in uh, approximately 350 homicides, not from start to finish, but participated in the investigations and helping outside agencies okay. was over 350. Tell us, tell us what is it like to be a homicide investigator on a personal level of being involved in hundreds of cases? Um, sometimes it's very tough. Sometimes it's very rewarding. Uh, sometimes it's very hard to go home and not take it with you. It's sometimes it's very hard to try to sleep and you can't. Right. Um, Do you ever have flashbacks when you're driving around Sacramento? Yeah, I can't go anywhere in Sacramento County without reminders. And uh, I always end up telling the wife, I such and such happened there. And right. You never forget. And is there something you've learned about perpetrators, the killers over the over the 36 years you worked in terms of similar patterns or anything like that? Well, well there's a difference. Um, Stranger abductions, I've learned a lot because I did quite a bit of studying on them. Uh, they're not that often, but when they do happen, they usually stay with you. They stay unsolved. Right. Um, and you learn from experience. Uh, you learn from reading from other investigators. So is there anything, you, you have mentioned something to me before we started the podcast about something you learned about some of these perpetrators? Well, I did learn on uh, such as this case, um, stranger abductions that uh, oftentimes uh, the perpetrator, if you take the components of a stranger abduction, such as where the crime, um, in this case where the victim's vehicle was deposited, and in this case where the victim's remains were deposited, I learned that the perpetrator will oftentimes live, work, or play within a short distance of one of those components. You know, I've known each other over 20 years on, on dealing with cold cases. This concept of what's called geographic profiling, which is a similar thing. It's, it's you know, you look about a, you know, a radius of maybe a mile from where this happened. And you start looking for that. You look for where they lived, where they worked, as you said, maybe perhaps where they play. And it, it is um, not always the case, but sometimes the case that that's what you find, right? That's true. And, and in this case, two of the components category of live, work, or play. So let's just, before we talk about this case, and, and I'm going to refer to it as Eva. Her name is Eva Chu. You and I got to know each other well over 20 years ago, right? Tell, tell the listeners kind of how we kind of came into working together. Uh, while she was with the district attorney's office. Um, me? She, You're talking about me? Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, she started the cold case um, procedures. And at that time, our department had no cold case unit or workers. And... Um, we got on board with her, and from that day on, it just it changed everything. We've solved uh, 
where the department has solved so many unsolved cases. Um, that's where I remember the first day she was assigned to homicide and then eventually she started developing plans for cold case units and uh, it blossomed from there. Right. I mean, I definitely remember um, this case and a lot of cases that you worked on. So I want to kind of start off with explaining to the listeners what this case is. And when we started the cold case unit, it was around 2001 or so. When I went around, just for the listeners purposes, what, what we did is, you know, I understood DNA at the time because I'd had cases. So we went around to all the law enforcement partners in Sacramento and we pitched this idea. We want to start a cold case unit. We want to solve crimes with DNA because it was the new and emerging tool that was going to help us. We went to SAC PD and we asked all the detectives, the homicide detectives, both current and retired, you know, tell us which ones are at the top of the list that are unsolved. And without, without fail, Eva Chu was at the top of the list. Uh, that would be at one of the very, at the top, yes. So tell us, I know why, but tell the listeners, why was this at the top of the list for every homicide detective? This was involving a hardworking, dedicated state employee, uh, seven months pregnant, um, what you would call an outstanding citizen, um, stranger abduction, uh, parked in a city parking lot in broad daylight was abducted. And those type of crimes just did not happen here in Sacramento in the late 70s. So just yeah. to, to, to kind of focus in on this particular case, April 17th, 1979, Eva Chu goes to work. She's seven months pregnant. She also has a daughter at the time, right? Yes. And how old is her daughter? I want to say about one and a half. Okay, so she's a toddler. Yes. April 17th, 1979 is a Tuesday, and it's the Tuesday after Easter Sunday. I remember it very vividly because of the photographs that we had in this case of Eva and her daughter at the park two days on Easter Sunday, two days before yes. she went missing. So kind of walk us through, you, you were assigned this case when the homicide was discovered, correct? Correct. Okay, so um, Eva was married at the time, obviously. Yes. Um, at some point, did you meet um, her husband? I did uh, numerous times. Okay. And her daughter, her daughter. Okay, so talk, talk us through, you mentioned that she, she goes to work, she works for the state, she's an outstanding citizen, and she leaves her work at three o'clock in the afternoon. What was the purpose of her leaving? She had a doctor's appointment at that time. Okay. And um, she didn't show up for the doctor's appointment. Her husband finally called the department to report her missing later that night. Okay. And then two days later, we found her car parked downtown. And, um, and two days after that, then we, a citizen on a wooded trail found her body. Okay, and where was, first of all, where was her car found? 
Uh, right in about the center of downtown in a busy area, commercial area. Okay. And then where, where precisely was her body found? In a uh, horse trail or walking or hiking trail uh, in a wooded area um, in the northern part of the town in um, kind of an isolated area. Were you actually assigned to go to the scene when her body had been found? Yes. So tell us, you know, what was that like for you? Um, it was very, uh, quite a complex scene because um, she was covered with branches and twigs and uh, it was on the, somewhere you can't drive by and see the location. You have to walk by it or ride by it on a horse. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was a hard seeing a process because you have to go through every, got to go through every inch on the ground around it. Hopefully you'll find some type of evidence. Right. From a human perspective though, what was it like to find her body? You know, she's seven months pregnant. It's tough because every one of us knew she was seven months pregnant. So it's right. very tough to look at her. Okay. So as part of the homicide investigation, did you, did you go to the coroner's office yes. for the purpose of the autopsy? Yes. Is that still, does that still linger with you? That will always linger with you. It doesn't go away. Okay. So this is 43 years ago. This happened just okay. to put the listeners in perspective. We didn't have DNA. No. We had barely probably started on kind of the basics of what we used to call serology, like blood typing and all of that. Right. But just kind of walk us through, I mean, obviously the case was unsolved for a long time, right? A long time. And um, then when I met you and then we, um, you and I worked together and it was the top case we wanted to start with. And, uh, so before we reopened it, I think it was sometime around the beginning of 2002 or so. But had you had contact with, I mean, at the early phases when, when Eva's body had been found, you met with the family, right? Yes. Is there anything about that other than the devastation to that family that, that still sticks out in your head? Two things that uh, really stuck with me and are still there today was uh, her daughter. Then I remember specifically how, if I may use the word fragile, her husband was. Um, very fragile. Did he know at the time of her death did he know the gender of the baby? No, he did not. Okay. And, and so it wasn't until the autopsy, um, it was revealed that she was pregnant with a girl. Yes, correct. Okay. So let's now kind of fast forward. Obviously, I, I have no doubt that Zach PD did everything in their humanly possible means to solve it over the years, right? Yes. And so then we get... When fast forward, this amazing tool called DNA kind of comes into the world. That's how you and I interacted first yes. on this case. Okay. So I have a very vivid memory uh, around 2002 of going with you to the property warehouse at SAC PD. Tell us kind of, tell the listeners what, what happened. Uh, we opened up uh, with the assistance of a property clerk. We examined all evidence collected during this and um, repackaged the 
her clothing right. and uh, to be resubmitted to the Sacramento Crime Lab. And we started over again with the evidence. There was evidence collected from her body, her clothes, her underwear, the autopsy kit. Yes. All of those then went to the crime lab um, for now for DNA testing. Yes. And after that testing was done, got a DNA profile from the killer. And that DNA profile was put into the what we call the convicted offender data bank, which for the listeners' purposes, in, in virtually every state, DNA is collected from felons, and that is then you know, searched continuously against crime scene samples. So in 2002, October, that DNA profile that was recovered from Eva's body was matched to a person in prison, right? Correct. And what's interesting to me when I kind of looked back over this case in preparation for today is that at the time of that search, you know, so basically, you know, the, the crime scene sample is being searched against that felon databank. At that time in 2002, 20 years ago, there was about a hundred and well, there's about 200,000 felons in that databank. Today, it's astronomically more. So it, it just tells me the value of that. Right? So tell us a little bit. So the, the, the DNA match comes back to a person named Joseph Aguayo, right? Yes. Okay. Tell us what, when you got that, you know, when you got the information that you matched it to somebody, first of all, what did you know about Mr. Aguayo once you? And uh, we saw that he was a, what we would describe as a career criminal in and out of prison with a very lengthy record. Right. To go back in time, at the time that she went missing, when she was, she was kidnapped, there were witnesses that had given general descriptions that matched Joseph Aguayo. Correct. Okay. You know, the hair, the eyes, the physical structure. Um, at the time that Eva was kidnapped in 1979, April 79, was, was Aguayo the perpetrator? Was he on parole at the time? Yes, he was. What did you learn about that? He had been released from prison uh, approximately four months earlier and was on parole at the time of the abduction. Okay. So then when we get, when we got the DNA match in 2002, what was he in prison for at that time? We had a, another case at the time. Uh, I did not participate in this case where another woman was uh, abducted and choked, strangled, and put in the trunk of a car and left for dead. Uh, some officers were driving by and saw the trunk lid move and subsequently recovered the fire department uh, arrived and brought her back. She lived and survived and he went to prison for trying that, to kill her. trying to kill her. So we get the DNA match in 2002. Just, just to give the listeners kind of a perspective here, uh, you were working on this case. Another investigator by the name of Derek Greenwood from our office, the DA's office, worked on it. I will never forget traveling up to the prison he was at, which was up in Susanville. It's called High Desert State Prison. I went with Detective Greenwood 
I went kind of as just the assistant. I wasn't there to be an investigator. I was there just to kind of observe and listen. And, you know, you mentioned earlier this concept of, and you're right on this one for sure, because what was revealed was that he lived right there. He lived five blocks from where her car was found. Okay. And, and that was figured out through his parole, right? His parole agent was able to give you an address. and traffic citation. Okay. And uh, he worked at a horseman's arena not far from where Eva Chu was found in the wooded area. Right. So two components fell into that. What was interesting for me, you know, I'm again, I'm not an investigator, but I've been involved enough of them to see, you know, how investigations work and um, strategies by law enforcement. And when Detective Greenwood and I went up there, you know, sitting here today, it's still, I still remember it vividly because I was literally three feet guy who had kidnapped, raped, and murdered a pregnant woman. That's something that I forget. So, so let's let's go back again. We got the DNA hit. You and I obviously were incredibly relieved that we've identified this person. But then you and I had lots of conversations that we, you know, 20 years after this crime, it's actually 23 years after the crime, um, we had to tell her family. So kind yes. of maybe walk, walk the listeners through what was that like? Because you and I, were, we did this together, right? Uh, you and I traveled and contacted him at his place of employment, took him into a private room and told him that we had successfully identified the perpetrator. And um, you never forget that when he breaks down crying. And like I said, he was very fragile man. We, we determined that right at the first part of the crime 20 years earlier. Uh, we decided to keep some details from him because we felt he was so fragile. Right. And um, it's that day's very vivid in my memory too, in him in the private room of where he worked. So and, for me, I feel the same way. I, um, it's been 20 something years since we had this conversation and what I remember very distinctly was we went, he took us into a storage closet. Yes. And because there was no place else to talk. At a, at a market, it was storage, small storage room at a market. Right. And he was, as you said, fragile is probably the best way. Now, remember, this is 20 plus years. And he looked at us and he said, well, this was just all my fault. And I remember saying, oh my goodness, why would you ever think that? And he just said, because I was supposed to take her to the doctor that day. He also said he had taken her to every prior doctor's visit. On this one occasion, it came up without much notice and he couldn't get off work. So he blamed himself for this happening. Yeah, it was, um, it was a moment for me that really is a guiding light on why we do this work because of the, the human toll that it takes on people. Yes. We lost my mother April 21st, 1979. So even though I was a year and a half, uh, 
she still has a huge part of my life. Just as a part of her absence, um, missing her. I knew general details, but I didn't know all the graphics. And um, I did go to a trial with my father. Uh, uh, it, it was, I knew prior to going to trial that it would be graphic and it would have everything that had happened. I don't think anything could prepare anyone for what I saw. And there was always a hole um, that, you know, in my heart that was my mom, my mother. And there's times when I was growing up, we, my father and I, we went to the cemetery a lot because that's where we could visit with my mother and my baby sister who wasn't born at the time yet. So the uh, child, I remember going to the cemetery pretty frequently. Uh, she was buried in Sacramento. So it was always a frequent visit, um, no matter what time of year. Um, and to this day, that's something I still, that's a place I still go to. Kind of a one-way conversation sometimes. That it happened to someone innocent, my mother and baby sister, say, where's the justice in this world? You know, um, I don't want anything happening to any other person than, than that happened to my family. So let's get back to kind of the actual, the case, um, Mr. Aguayo was arrested and prosecuted, right? I was not the prosecutor. Ernest Sartell, who's now a judge in Sacramento, very capable, very good lawyer, um, did the trial, right? Top notch. Top notch, a good way to put it. Um, Did you testify at the trial? Yes. Okay. And this whole concept of living, working, and playing, was that something that you had actually testified about? Yes. Okay. And it, it it all came to kind of reality though that that those three things really did play a part here yeah two of the three things played a part yeah because we don't know where we i was able to tell the jury that so i want to just um kind of go back to just the realities of this case for you um just maybe just tell the listeners because you, you talked about as a homicide investigator, 350 cases, that there's certain things that you're not gonna forget. You know, where was her car found? It was um, found in a busy part of town and it was parked beside a business. However, it wasn't parked directly beside it. It was parked a little ways back from the distance so that it didn't stand out. Right. Um, And, was within five blocks walking distance of where he was residing. A busy area and you could park a car there and nobody's gonna pay attention to you parking it there. Right. Been retired now almost 20 years, right? Yes. To this day, if you go over, the car was found on basically 27th and Broadway in Sacramento, right? Broadway is a major, major busy street. So as you, you know, live your retirement life, does it still, does it still 
hit you when you're over in that area? Uh, every time I drive by that area, which is frequent, uh, you you look over. Right. And then do you remember? I remember. I still remember cases. If I've prosecuted cases, you know, rape case, kidnaps, especially the strangers, right? Because it's the same as going down the busy freeway, Interstate 80, you, you look over to the right and there's the wooded park where you found her or she was found. You, you still remember. Even 43 years later, you don't forget any part of it. Right. And she um, was found specifically near what's called a horseman's association, right? Yes. And when we go back to this live and work concept, um, did he work near there? Yes. What, what kind of work? I, I think it was, uh, I don't remember the details if it was cleanup or um, handyman. I think he was he fencing was a, stuff. Yeah, handyman fix broken things okay okay but it was it was close right it was close so all of those pieces you know obviously you match the physical descriptions yes. at the time and the the parking lot was uh not far from where he had to report to a parole office too so he didn't play at the parole office but there was a third component he was familiar with that parking lot because it was an open parking lot because it was close to where he had to report to right and, and we didn't i don't think we've said this but what was her cause of death strangulation okay so kidnap rape yes. strangled to death yes okay. obviously her baby died as well yes and i still have the photographs from the funeral in the burial because the baby's name was Kelly. Yes. Okay. Over the years, so once the DNA hit happened, did you did you reconnect with the daughter and the husband? Um, I connected with the daughter and the husband again at the trial. And uh, I don't remember how long I kept contact with uh, Mr. Chu and Dana, her daughter. Uh, after the crime, I tried to keep in contact with them and let them know we're not giving up. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Just for the listener's sake, you know, one of the things that I think is important for people to understand when you work these kinds of cases for so long is once there was, you know, he was identified, once he was arrested and prosecuted and convicted, you know, what would you say are your lessons that you learned from this case? Well, uh, we learned a lot about uh, better ways to collect evidence and preserve evidence thanks to you. Uh, you kind of rewrote the book or procedures on that. Um, and that applied to some other cold DNA cases, uh, rewriting the way evidence was handled and processed and preserved. Right. Uh, I think that was one of the most important things that came out of the evidence aspect of it. Um, it, even though there was a conclusion here, they, there's never a closure for Mr. Chu or her daughter. Uh, there's kind of a closure for the detective. Um, there is some satisfaction. Um, but it's, you don't 
something reminds you of it, you don't have pleasant memories. You have memories of a horrendous crime. Right. Right. And and uh, horrendous hurt to the families. How did you feel? You know, the crime happens in April of '79. It's solved in 2002. You know, how did you feel after that many years in terms of it being solved? Um, felt a lot. My neck was broken from bouncing up on the ceiling when <laughs> you gave me the call that you had a hit. I remember that specifically. Yeah. Um, very good feeling. Yeah. I think it brings a lot of hope for cases. Yeah. And I'm, I'm amazed at what I read now, being retired for 20 years on other cases. Uh, I'm ecstatic that it can be done. And uh, I remember you were, we had no DNA then. You were the pioneer of it. I was just pushy, probably. Well, you but... were, yes, you were very pushy, <laughs> but you were also the pioneer of it. You know, for me, I think, you know, going back to when that DNA hit happened and then ultimately when he was convicted, I think there's a couple things about this. First of all, we can never ignore the value of DNA evidence to find the truth, right? No matter where Correct. it leads us, it is Correct. without hesitation, the greatest tool we found law enforcement's been given. I have 40 years in law enforcement, 36 years there and four years elsewhere, and there has never been a greater tool. I don't care how good the investigator is in interviewing or interrogations, there has never been a greater tool right. than DNA. No doubt about it. And a fingerprint. Right. It is the modern day fingerprint, basically. Yes. So the other thing, the, the second half of, of what I've learned from this case and others is the human toll. I mean, I say this a lot, um, but there is no starker example of the impact of violent crime in this case because of what happened to her correct, and her family. And, and you meet different type people that's so fragile that we didn't tell him certain aspects of the case for over 20 years because right. we were worried that he would not be able to handle it. You know, and the other thing about it is, you know, I've been in the business 31 years, you were in it for 40. When you sit with families, it changes them forever. Yes. It changes the way they raise their children. It changes for some folks, the jobs they choose to do. It changes how they look at the world. You know, when I've said this recently as well, but you know, when, when the Golden State Killer was convicted and sentenced, which I also spent thousands of hours working on. Right. And and you probably met some of the victims and their families. I interviewed young. I don't remember her age, 13, 14, 15 year old. Right. But what I what I will probably not forget is listening to the victims in that sentencing proceeding. One of the women that had been assaulted by him said that she chose to become a teacher. And a woman who had been assaulted said that she never water skied again because he said to her, I saw you at the lake that day. And I think for me, in, in this case of Eva's case and all of these other ones, if we neglect to acknowledge the toll that this takes, whether it's our laws or our policies, you know, how we handle cases, then we're failing, right? Correct. So um, I've had a great pleasure. Um, 
I remember the day, I remember when you first went to homicide. You were a 97 pound soaking wet female in a man's world. And uh, I deny the 97 you, pounds. <laughs> you kind of you took over. Uh, you were one of the greatest I met in 36 years of dealing with the DA's office. And actually, probably uh, 56 years because of cases after I retired. Well, it's all about passion and persistence, right? Yes. So um, any other final comments for the, for the listeners, just in terms of your, your incredible career, this case? Well, I just, uh, I, I uh, am very thankful for the changes you made in the procedures with evidence and guidelines and uh, very thankful that I got to meet you when you were a rookie yeah. and uh, what you've done. With the uh, the worst, you know, with this case and a couple other homicide cases that we've had that have been unsolved for 20 and 30 years and also the Golden State Killer. Yeah. Uh, no other no crime had more impact on Sacramento than the Golden State Killer. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, I thank you for your time. I thank and you for I, your dedication. I feel very fortunate to get to know you and work with you over the years. Well, that's a ditto. And to the listeners, thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, go to InsideCrimeFiles.com. Inside the Crime Files is produced by Olas Media in San Diego, California.